My guest today is a speaker, coach, and co-host of the Best Life Podcast. She's also been a friend of mine for almost 25 years, Danny J. And I know I said I was going to keep these episodes short, but sometimes in an interview, there's so much good content, you just don't want to cut anything. I'm Artvark Girl, and this is Business for Self-Employed Creatives. Well, thank you for being my first guest. I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, You have this really great Find the Money project that is super relevant to what's going on right now. So we'll talk a lot about that. But a little bit of background. I've known you since high school, which is kind of exciting that we're still in this world together and still be able to connect. And you've helped me with some of my business stuff. You're one of the people I mentioned in one of my other episodes about telling me that I should do more on-camera stuff, even though I don't want to. So... Look, you're so beautiful and you're giving the world a gift to see that. And, you know, people connect when they can see you. It's really, it's really interesting. So I'm glad you are. Well, thank you. And speaking of connecting, one of, I mean, you have a lot of strong points that I could highlight, but one of the huge things that always resonates with me is your willingness to share your story. And by story, I don't mean just how you got to where you are, but I mean your, your story, things that you've gone through that most people don't talk about. And I can go through a list. You got pregnant at 15, gave that child up for adoption. You were suicidal. As you were a gymnast, you became paralyzed, lost a large amount of time. Uh, You got married. He had an affair. While you were packed up and living out of an RV, uh, you found out that your dad dad wasn't actually your dad. And then you met all sorts of your biological half-siblings. Yes. And through all of this... You now are in a very healthy relationship. Your business is thriving. You talk about all of this. Like that's that list. And right there, if you want to know more about that list, check out the Best Life podcast because she talks about all of it. (laughs) Yep. How did you come to a point where you decided you could talk about this stuff so openly? Oh my gosh. Well, it's so funny when you just knock it off on a list. I was just talking to my boyfriend the other day and I said, you know, when I, he goes, you never, you don't really talk about when you were paralyzed or you don't talk about this part of your story. And I said, I know, because I feel like it's so much for one person. It starts to feel unbelievable. And I was like, if it didn't happen to me, I would think this was like some kind of movie about like, it just doesn't, it seems like too much. But, um, the point online that I remember very specifically was I was actually, I was a personal trainer. So after like just not to just brush over the story, but I kind of have to. I became paralyzed. I was an acrobat at SeaWorld. I got a bacterial infection and I couldn't walk for a year. And I started to rehabilitate myself through going to the gym and like literally just sitting on a bike and pushing my legs around with my with my hands. And so through that process, I became a trainer, got into the fitness industry. And I think when you are a trainer, a lot of I think a lot of trainers feel this way. It's like you feel like you have to look the part. So I was going doing extreme like body fitness competitions where you're just judged by how lean you are and how fit you are. And you have to be on such a strict regimented diet and workout plan. And I did this for like seven years. And during that time, I things got so strict that I it actually started to hurt my body. So it's interesting because we see these health and fitness gurus out there. And a lot of them are probably the most unhealthy people you've ever really known. And so my body started to shut down. And what was really happening was I started to gain like weight super rapidly. And I was like doing two hours of cardio a day, like spending three hours a day in the gym. I was eating, you know, a thousand calories. So on paper, you know, they say eat less, work out more. Like I should have been not gaining. And instead I was gaining, like I gained about 30 pounds in just about two months. 
And so it was during that time, I, I'm a trainer, I'm feeling embarrassed. I'm like, who's going to hire me because I do weight loss coaching and yet I'm gaining weight. And so I was feeling like a fraud and I was seeing this happen in this fitness industry where a lot of these competitors, I meet them offline or, or in person and they did not look like how they looked in pictures. Like they were very overweight. And I was like, you know what, something is going on here and nobody's saying anything. And now mind you, this industry too is very tight and it's like you... Political, I guess, is the only way to put it. Like I found out as I went on, people would win if they knew somebody and there was a lot of like that kind of stuff happening. So for me to speak out, I was also basically throwing away my chance at ever like turning pro. And that was like my goal. Everybody wanted to earn their pro card. And there just became, there was just a day where a girl DM'd me and she was telling me how she had gained all this weight. And I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And so I literally opened up my laptop, I put on the camera and I just started, I think it was like a 20 minute video. And I just started talking about what was going on. I was so embarrassed. And I just said like, here's what's happening to our bodies and here's what's happening to mine. And I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I'm going to try to find an answer for myself and for all of you that are struggling. And then I put it up on YouTube and I remember slamming my computer and like going to my room and crying. And I didn't want to look because I was like, that's it. Career suicide. I'm done. And the next day I opened it up and I had like 200 emails from people saying, oh my gosh, this is happening to me too. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're do you're going through this as well. And a lot of pros were saying it. They're like, you know, because of who I am, I can't talk about this. I'm so glad you did. And that was like the first time I was like, oh, this actually really connects with people. And it's around that year, that was 2012, I want to say. In 2013, I just got this idea that if there's something I don't want to talk about, that is exactly what I have to talk about. And so it almost became this challenge to myself. If something was uncomfortable, I'm like, oh, shit, I guess I'm going to have to say it. And I realized that every time I did that, almost every time I had the same experience, I wanted to shut the laptop, run and cry to my room. But I would say 100% of the time I shared those scary things were the things that really connected me with people. And most of the time I got, thank you for saying this. I'm glad I'm not alone. You know, I'm so glad you shared this. This happened to me too, or I know someone. And you know, then starting the Best Life podcast, that was really the piece was, it was really embarrassing to share about my marriage ending because I had that kind of marriage that I feel like everyone was like, what's your secret? And I thought the same. So it was just probably more shocking to me than anyone else. But um, it was one of those things where, you know, you see people online having these fake lives and like acting like they're great and you know, like their marriage is shitty, but mine wasn't like that. And I was like, wait a second, how did this happen? And so that was one of the, again, Going back to talking about things I didn't want to talk about, I didn't want to share that. It was super embarrassing. I took my time before I did and got to process it and work through counseling and, and all of that. But again, I thought, who can relate to this? And I got dozens and dozens of emails just saying thank you. And even people who hadn't been through an affair just saying, like, I can understand the feelings of loss, of grief, of those feelings. And I think people really connect to stories and they connect to feelings. And so once I started, not that I couldn't stop, but I feel compelled to. And I think, and we always say this in the best life, is if it can just help one person, then it's worth it. And so now it's just become part of who I am and part of how I show up is going out there and putting myself on the line. And it's scary, but I think if it just helps one person, then it's always worth it. And that's a good motivation to have for that. Because there's what we do see online with all the perfectly curated lives and look at all these great things I'm doing. There's that sense of, of phoniness that you want everybody's lives to be that great. 
but we know that there's stuff going on beneath the surface and that's the stuff that we connect with more and I know for me, trust is a huge thing. And it, just even in business, if I'm going to work with somebody, I need to believe them. I need to know that they're honest, that they share the same values that I have. And I get that from someone like you versus someone that has the perfect modely photos and things are so great all the time. It's And it's not that I want to hear the bad things all the time either. There's a some people are sh- comfortable sharing that some don't want it on their platforms. Yeah. Neither one is wrong, but I think there's a, a lot of courage that comes from it. And in business, there's this big thing where you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone to really get to where you want to be. And that's like this right now, this is hard for me. Like I've talked to you a million times. I could talk to you for hours, but for some reason there's a camera and there's microphones and then I'm like shaky and it's like, oh, it's so weird. And I don't feel in my head, I'm not nervous about this. It's completely fine, but it's out of my comfort zone just enough and that's why I know that I have to do it. <laughs> yes. And I love that because that was the thing. It was like, it's like that if it is out of your comfort zone, it's kind of like, I feel like it's this some, I don't know, universal trigger to be like, hey, maybe this is what you should be doing. And that was really what it came down to. I was like, if I am scared of it, if then maybe I need to push myself toward that. I learned this analogy this summer, which I love. So I went up to Wyoming. My boyfriend had like a startup up there. We went through Yellowstone and we saw lots of buffalo and it was really cool. And I was talking to some friends about this and our friend's uh, work, I guess he, they started this thing called Be the Buffalo. And what they mean is like, if there's a storm coming, um, a storm coming over like plains, cows will see the storm coming and they'll run away from the storm. But buffaloes, and because they're running away, it's, they're going to be in the storm longer because it's like tagging behind them, where buffaloes will run towards the storm in the direction of the storm. And so when the storm is passing over them, they actually get through the storm faster because they're going into it and it passes over. And so this analogy is just like, be the buffalo, like go into the hard things, do the hard things because they're coming anyway. And so if you go into them, you're going to get through them faster And it's just, it's like, it's going to be quicker. And so I really love that analogy of just like, if something feels hard, it feels resistance, go into it, get it over with. Like it's, it's coming. The storm is coming. Like, let's just go into the freaking storm. So I really like that. And so now it's just like that kind of mantra, be the buffalo. And it kind of fits how, how I look at things of have hard conversations, talk about the things you don't want to do, put yourself out of your comfort zone, rip the bandaid off. (laughs) Right. And a lot of that comes down to communication too, which is a big thing in personal relationships, professional relationships, all of that. People are not communicating about the things that are scaring them or that are making things difficult. And they keep that part inside and it causes friction because people are starting to get resentful about things that the other person has no idea about. Oh yeah. People have that issue with confrontation, but there's a a friendly, polite way to have a confrontation with somebody. It doesn't have to be super aggressive and you're making me do this and I feel this way and, and all of that stuff, but just having that open communication with others. Yes. So we had this woman on our podcast named Renelle Nelson and she is a counselor and she helps couples regain intimacy after an affair. And she's talking, you know, we're talking about affairs and how, you know, someone else comes into your relationship that you know, shouldn't be there. But she said, there's something that will destroy a relationship faster than any third party. And that's judgment, assumption, and resentment. And she said it in a different order. And I told my boyfriend this and he goes, oh, jar, judgment, assumption, resentment. And I was like, 
okay, sure. And then we kind of turn this into this analogy of like, if you have something in your jar, it builds up and builds up and turns into this mess. So we kind of started this thing where like, we don't always do it every Sunday, but on Sunday we're like, is there anything in the jar that you need to talk about? Because those resentments build up, those assumptions, you know, if he's not putting his clothes in the camper and it's annoying me, so I'm sitting here judging him for doing that. Maybe I'm making an assumption that he's lazy or that he doesn't care enough to do it. And then I start resenting him because I'm constantly picking up. That builds up and builds up and builds up. And if it's not, if you don't empty out that jar, then it turns into something even bigger. Now I'm making assumptions that he just doesn't care at all. And now if he does any little thing, I'm picking it apart. And so it's exactly what you said is having the communication and not letting those things build up because those things will crush any relationship and not even just romantic relationship, friendships, work environment, all of that. And so that like jar analogy has really stuck with me to when I'm starting to get resentful towards someone, I'm, I ask myself, like, what is that about? Am I making a judgment or assumption? And maybe I need to bring that up to them because I could be completely wrong. And 90% of the time the assumptions I'm making are wrong. They're through my lens and they're not what the other person is thinking. And having that conversation smooths that out. And then everyone could like breathe normal instead of having that like irritation. <laughs> right. And I, I've seen that happen a lot in the work world recently. And it's a lot with freelancers. And I, I hear all these complaints. So like my client calls me at all hours of the day or they're sending me all this stuff on the weekends and they just expect me to do it. And it's like, do they tell you they expect you to do it? Because I have a lot of clients who they do their work on the weekends, so they want to get all the stuff out of their head. So I'll get a bunch of emails, but they know that I'm not going to respond until Monday or, or later. And they're like, well, they, they, they just keep doing it. It's like, but have you talked to them? Have you set any kind of boundary that says, hey, these are my office hours. It's fine. If you have communication afterwards, could you email it instead of text it? I've had these conversations with clients and they're like, oh yeah, sorry, I didn't realize. And they're perfectly fine with it. Where if you don't have that conversation, you start to think, well, they disrespect me and they don't value what I'm doing. And they're just so demanding. And I've seen working relationships end over a conversation that was never had. Totally. I mean, that's exactly it. It's just that's an assumption. You're They're assuming that they want it done at a certain time. And maybe they are, but you have to have the conversation to know. And if you agreed to take on work and you are a freelancer, you can set your boundaries and give your client the expectation what to expect from you. I think in any relationship, especially a working relationship, there needs to be, here's my expectation of you and here's what you can expect from me. And if there's any change, we need to have a discussion. And it's not always easy in working relationships, but it does take time and practice and open communication. I mean, so much can be solved in communication. So many things get assumed about another person that aren't just aren't true. <laughs> a, a different kind of assumption and kind of moving into where we're at now, which is a really weird time in the world. Yeah. And has opened you up to sharing another one of your stories, <laughs> which is when you had to file for bankruptcy. Yeah. And at the time when this happened, you had made this kind of assumption to blame the recession. The economy tanked. That's the reason that I'm in this situation. But what did you find out was actually the root of the issues? Yeah, <laughs> you know, this is such a good one because during COVID-19, a lot of people are going to blame COVID-19 for everything. I mean, we might as well. We might as well blame it for everything. <laughs> Shoot, 2020 is like just gone. But, you know, I was in Las Vegas in during the Great Recession. And everyone, if you ask, they say 2008 was when everything happened. And I remember 2008, my parents were in the construction industry and housing. And that in Las Vegas especially was 
the building was stopping. My mom got unemployed. My dad became unemployed. My uncle's company shut down. They were in construction and building and concrete. And um, I remember my mom saying like, things are so bad and unemployment is so high and everyone's losing their jobs. And I looked around me and I would say eight out of 10 people that I knew in Las Vegas were either foreclosing on their home, filing bankruptcy or um, doing a short sale. And so this was happening around me. However, my business, I was a personal trainer and you would have thought that because training is a luxury, people would drop that. But here's what was the weird thing that happened in Vegas. People stopped paying their mortgage because they could get away with it and the banks couldn't keep up kicking people out. So they were not paying their mortgage for like two years. And so a lot of those people still had their jobs. And because now they weren't paying 1200 a month, 2000 a month, they had all this extra money. So they decided to hire me as a trainer because they're like, hey, I've always wanted a trainer. So my business was booming from 2008 to 2010. I was like, kind of in one of those like, well, I guess I'm cool. I like this isn't affecting me. So I continued to spend you know, live my life like normal. I don't think I was a crazy spender, but I was like putting in new countertops, upgrading the entire house, doing all that stuff with cash. And then around mid 2010, a lot of clients, suddenly the banks were kicking them out of their houses and they had to stop the game, right? So within a month, I lost like 30, 40% of my income. And then it just kept trickling. I was losing clients all the time. Like, hey, DNA, I can't pay anymore. We got to move back to Ohio or wherever from, and we can't do this. And so suddenly it turned to where now I'm struggling to make my mortgage. And not only that was our house was worth half of what we owed. And I'd put all this money into upgrading it. So we were faced with this decision of, do we want to pay this rent at, or this mortgage when the house is worth nothing and we've put so much money into it? And so Going back and forth, we talked to lots of lawyers and finally made the decision ourselves to not pay the rent for a year <laughs> and foreclose on the home and file bankruptcy. And then I had to move, moved out of state to start a business with my girlfriend that all fell apart. I was looking for any kind of job. I mean, I was applying to all kinds of things. And ultimately, my husband ended up getting a job for $35,000 a year in Texas, which I'd been in Vegas my whole life never had any desire to go to Texas. And $35,000 a year was like about what I made in, you know, after college. So we had never lived on that like small amount. And I remember thinking it was so beneath us and yet we had to take it. And so we moved out there and this whole time I was just crying like every day, blaming the economy. If this hadn't happened, if I just had more money, um, if we just made more money, then everything would be fine. And I really truly believed that. I thought, you know, I had some student loans, didn't have massive debt. I think we had a $5,000 credit card, which we had used to fix the car that fell apart during all this. And I had student loan still left over from my master's. But I felt like it was so unfair. Like I didn't ask for the economy to that happen. Um, you know, I did was a good person. There were so many things that I thought should have been different and that money would fix everything. And I spent a lot of time on Google, Googling how to make more money, Googling how to win a car. I was entering every sweepstakes you could think of and entering four names, my dad's email, my mom's email, my email, my husband, like giving us four chances to win. I mean, I spent hours trying to win a car. By the way, I never won one. <laughs> but I came, I stumbled across a woman who was really one of my first money mentors. And I stumbled across her because I was Googling myself and she had my same name. And I, the funny thing was, is I had a Facebook page at the time, which had about 35,000 fans. And I thought it was a shit because of this. And this woman was named Danny Johnson and she had a hundred thousand fans. And I was like, who's this bitch with my name and has more followers than me. <laughs> and I started seeing her post about money and mindset and debt. 
And I did a little more research and found out she was going to be in Dallas where I happened to be living like the very next week. So I was like, you know, I'm going to try to see this chick. I thought it was going to be this small event. It cost $400. I literally had just paid off. Like my credit card was maxed out. I just made a payment of 500 to like clear space. And I made this deal with myself. I was like, this is either the stupidest thing I've ever done or it's going to be the best thing. But I decided to charge the credit card again to go to this event that was supposed to teach about money and getting out of debt. And I went in there with every meaning to just get my $400 back. That is all I wanted to do. I was like, I need to get out of this situation. I don't know how we're going to make money again. I mean, we had six figures. We had three cars and a motorcycle. We had the car. We had it all. And it's like, why am I living in a one-bedroom apartment now on a $35,000 a year salary? So what I learned was so much is mindset. You know, one thing is that there are people who have an abundance mindset and people who have a poverty mindset and a fixed, I should say fixed mindset. And a fixed mindset is someone who's like, well, I grew up in this neighborhood and nothing is ever going to change. And people like me don't do well. And, you know, if I try, nothing ever works. And someone with an abundance mindset is like, okay, I tried that, didn't work. Let me try something else. Or someone with a fixed mindset is going to say, well, nobody's hiring. That was the things I was saying. Nobody's hiring any more money versus an abundance mindset is like, what kind of skills do I have? What can I do to try to make more money? Or instead of saying, I can't afford it, saying, how can I afford that? And that shifts everything. You start to look for different possibilities. And I was just stuck thinking like, this is the economy. This is how it is. There are no jobs. Nobody's hiring. I'm overqualified. That wasn't true. I had a lot of skills. One of the things that got me in the most trouble was my freaking ego. If I had maybe told people that I was struggling, I had so many friends, so many connections. I'm sure somebody would have hooked me up with a job or introduced me to someone, but I didn't want anyone to know I was struggling. I didn't want anyone to know we got on food stamps. I didn't want anyone to know we were moving away for this small job. I had so much pride and I learned that it was my ego. I learned that I wasn't being faithful with what I had when I had the money. Like during that 2008 to 2010 time, if I had been putting money into savings and saving instead of putting it all into fixing the house, holy cow, there was so much property and real estate I could have snatched up. I would have set myself up to be so wealthy and yet I squandered it. And so really right now, and I will say this to people who are in 2020 who haven't gotten hit yet, who maybe are like, I'm good. My job is stable. Like this is the time to really be hanging on to that cash because there will likely be in 2023 opportunities that will be unbelievable if you have that money now. And not only that is there's a domino effect. This may be slower. I mean, we've just seen a bunch of rioting happen and there's businesses that will never open again because they've been shut down for three months and now they're destroyed. And so we have to be prepared that this may not have hit you today, but it doesn't mean it's not coming. And so we have to be so faithful with what we have, mindful with what we have, instead of just thinking like everything will always be how it always was because it's just certainly not. And I just learned not only... You know, I I think I was always taught to live within my means, but that really shifted a lot for me. I think that not only living within my means, but even living below my means was more important. And I think because of the ego and having everything stripped away, some of this stuff mattered less to me, like having a nice car, you know, having a home, realizing that can all go away, but also you can always get it again. And so I'm much less attached to having success, the view of success on the outside. Um, And I think so much of us, so many of us have that and think that way. And so yeah, COVID-19 happened. A lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people will never get that work back again. However, 
you have skills, you can do something about it. You can come back, you can come back stronger. I mean, there's people who are making so much money right now that have used this as an opportunity and so can anyone else. So you have to learn to pivot and know that your circumstances don't create your outcome. It's that mindset right there. It's There are a lot of bad things happening, but those things can also create opportunities. And I've seen there are people who are using this time to really develop different parts of their businesses and say, oh, I could do this online. And even on the personal side, this one's a little different because people have been forced to stay home. A lot of people have, and those people are realizing how much money they actually spend on things like going out to eat and their hair and their nails and all these different things that are there's a place for those. But if you're really serious about building that safety net and being financially comfortable, if not financially thriving, you have to make an active choice. And there's sacrifice that comes with that sometimes where maybe you don't do all the fun things that you want, or maybe you don't buy the brand new thing that comes out, but it's a series of choices. And a lot of people, unfortunately, focus on the blame side of it and why it's always somebody else's or another circumstance. And that's the reason why they're in the situation. And there, there are always external forces. I always feel like I have to give the disclaimer that I'm not unsympathetic to what people are going through. But I think now is one of those times where people, because everybody always knows we need to have this money saved. We need to have a safety net. You should have six months put aside. Everybody knows that, but a lot of people don't do it. Yeah. And now they're seeing what happens when you don't have that. Well, people always think when, like when I make more, then I'll do it. When I make more, then I'll give. When I make more, then I'll save. And the when never comes. You have to do it now. And people think that like when I'm rich, then I'll be really generous. Well, if you're not generous when you don't have a lot, you're not going to be generous when you have more. And I think that a lot of us too have an entitlement problem and like a rebelliousness against discipline. And there's a difference between discipline and deprivation. And so I'll say to someone like, okay, let's cut back. And they're like, well, I don't want to like give up anything. It's like, okay, there's a difference between like giving up something for what you want versus giving up something that's deprivation, right? So I'm not the money person who tells people to cut coupons and go on special shopping days. And like, I'm not trying to squeeze a penny out of every single dollar. But I'm also not the person who believes that making more money fixes everything because we have so many instances of professional athletes making tens of millions of dollars a year who end up bankrupt within two years of retirement. So there is a place for both. We need to learn how to control our spending and be able to create more. But ultimately, it is like being intentional with what we actually want our life to be. So if someone says to me, I have a dream to go to Italy or Paris, and I've never been able to afford to go, and they are drinking Starbucks and we look at their bank statements and they are spending 300 a month at Starbucks and we'd add that up over the year, let's just even say only 100 a month at Starbucks. Okay, $1,200 a year, there's your round trip flight to Paris and you cut out a few more things, there is your round trip flight and your stay and your food. And so then you decide, do I want the Starbucks every day or do I want my trip to Paris? Because when you when you hold it up towards what you really want, then it's easy to make the choice to be more disciplined. But if you're just like, don't take away my Starbucks, that's the one joy I have, fine. I don't want to take your freaking joy away. I'm just saying, if you're telling me you want this and you can't have it, let's find a way that you can have it. So if you're making, you know, multi-millions dollars and you're living off of 20,000 a year, eat every single meal out. Eat every meal out, go to Jack in the Box, do whatever you want, like who cares? But 
if your lifestyle, if you want it to be different, you have to do something different. And most often it's not about making more money. It's actually just reallocating the resources you have and making an intentional plan. That's it. It's that deferred gratification of you're maybe giving up something right now, but you get something way better, even a short period of time later. It's just getting into that mindset and realizing it's not, again, instead of focusing on the negative, oh, well now I can't have this and now I don't get this. It's like, no, no, no. Now you get to do this. Now you can have this other thing. Totally. And so what I like about you created this find the money project and a lot of people, I'm sure their first response is, well, I don't have any money. How am I supposed to pay for a program? But you give them a seven day free challenge where people have these results. I know you people have found like a thousand dollars or more just by taking your challenge for free, just by doing a few little tricks that they can do easily at home. They just hadn't thought about yet. So how did that come about? Yeah. So, you know, after, after going through um, the bankruptcy and all of that, I, so mind you, I had paid my way through school by myself and then my master's degree, I got a student loan. And so I think I had about $35,000 student loan. And so about seven years, I'd paid off about half of it. And so I still had 18,000 left and I had gone through this thing with Danny Johnson and really started to just focus on these things. And after I went to that workshop, I paid off the $18,000 in 69 days. Now, seven years to pay off $18,000 and then like 70 days to pay off $18,000. And mind you, this was when we're only making $35,000 a year, not before when I was making six figures. So I... I started to talk like I was so excited. I like took my my student loan thing and like circled it and I posted it on social media. Like it's I'm paid off student loan debt free, you know. And people are like, how did you do it? And so I decided to do a webinar. I just got on. I was like, everyone's asking me. I'm going to do this. This is to my fitness community. I told them what I was doing. These little little small things. And then like Periscope came out, and this was like a live kind of like IG live and Facebook live. And I said. I'm going to give you guys five tips. These are like the five main things. And then I created an opt-in, which is basically people give you their email to get the five tips because I had posted it once and people said, can you do it again? Can you do it again? I said, well, how about just send your email and I'll send you the replay. So I got like 1400 people to download that opt-in. And that was this idea of, oh, people really want to know about this stuff. So I thought, well, maybe we could do this together before Christmas. Let's do a challenge. Um, in November, try to find more money for Christmas money. And so I broke it down into 14 steps and it was a 30 day challenge. So every other day we did a step and people were finding $1,800. This one girl found like $10,000. I mean, it was, but the average, I had people fill out surveys. The average person found between $1,800 to $2,200 in that month. And so at the end of it, people were like, okay, so now what? I was like, I don't know. I just thought this would be fun. (laughs) And then I'm going, well, shoot, how can I monetize this? And how can I, like, it's not the end. There's a lot more to it. So once I became debt-free, then I had a whole new set of problems. What do you do with your money? Where do you invest it? I don't know what to do with it now. Like, I was just like, the goal was to get out of debt. Now what? And so that's a whole new mindset. Becoming an investor is a new mindset. So I surveyed people who went through the challenge. I got on the phone with many of them and I said, hey, what do you need? What are you still curious about? What would help you? And then I created a course called Master Your Money and put everything in there that I felt like people still needed. It's like, cool, you found some money in two weeks. That's great. But eventually some of those things are going to 
you're going to run out. Like some of the things on there are like basically like Geico, like one call could save you, like make some calls and get your shit lowered, you know? So cool. You save $15 a month or you save $300 a year, but then what? So it's kind of my program turned into like the then what? This is what you need to do now. Like now it's a practice. Now you need to really learn the discipline, learn the skills, learn how to pay that debt off fast. Like how do you do the debt snowball? What are the pitfalls you're going to come across? Because sometimes paying off debt gets you into more debt, ironically. And so I'm trying to teach people how to do that mindfully and carefully so you don't just screw yourself up again. And so, yeah, that's where it really came from. It just turned into this. I shared my story as I do. And then people asked for more and I gave more. And then it was like, then what? And I'm like, oh, I guess this isn't the end. And, you know, I think part of being a content creator is really listening to your audience and seeing what they want and what they need and how you can help fill that. And then really asking, like I did those surveys and I asked people very specific. And then even after and during the course, um, I've updated this course. I just updated it again in 2020 with new stuff and the coronavirus change things as well. You know, it changed some strategies as far as what to pay off right now, um, what to hold on to right now. And people are in different circumstances. And so I address that in my private group with them. And I think it's important to stay on the pulse, but also just to serve in a way that people that they need and that they're asking for. It kind of ties into that thing about ego before, because so many people, they're like, I know what's best for everyone. So this is what I'm going to do. And then they put all this time putting together some kind of program or online course or something else. And then nobody buys it. And then of course, it turns into now I'm the victim because my product didn't work, but I know they need this. It's like, but did, did you ask them? Yeah. Like we talked about communication. Did you ask your clients or your potential clients what they need like, yeah, but I, I know this is the problem. It's like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a thing in marketing that's like, give them or sell them what they want, give them what they need. So sometimes that's the problem is we do know what they need, but they think they need something else. So, you know, and I've struggled with this even in my marketing and find the money and I, I've tweaked it over the years is a lot of times people just think they need more money. And I know that's not the case. I know that they could do a lot with what they already have. And then once they know how to manage that, then let's, pour gasoline on the fire and make more money. But if you're mismanaging your small amount, you're going to mismanage a large amount too. But I have to position it in a way that they will make more money, they will find more money, and that it's going to help them do that, which it will. But it is, it's tricky. It's like when I was in, in fitness, a lot of times people come to you, they just want to lose weight. They're saying, I want to lose weight. I want to feel, you know, be skinny. I want to fit in these pants or whatever. And I'm like, I know they just need to change their mindset. They need to do like some work around body image. Maybe they need to do some work around food stuff, but they're not going to buy my fix your mindset program. They're going to buy the program that helps them have fat loss. So it's like I market it towards what they want. And then I, in the program, I'm like, you know, twisting in those mindset pieces that they need. And you're so right is asking people what they want and using their language. And then if you think they need something else, how can you tie that into the lessons and tie that into the learnings to show them, like you have to create a bridge from where they are to where they're gonna be. But if you're like over here trying to get them to see, they're, they're still on the other side of the bridge. They need to like cross that and they need to have the same epiphany that maybe you had. I've seen the same as you. I've seen so many people create courses first. And I'll tell you when I created Master Your Money, I actually sold it before I made it. I sold the outline, to be quite honest. I wasn't even sure, because I was like, I don't know if anybody's going to buy it. I mean, I did this free challenge. People loved it, but I've never sold a money course. I've only done fitness stuff. So I did a webinar. I said, here's this course I'm doing. It's nine, it's 90 days. This is what we is in it. This is what's in it. And then I sold $35,000. I was like, shoot, I guess I could better make this thing. <laughs> now I'm on the hook. 
And then I released a module every 10 days because I was like, okay, I got to make the content this week. And then next week I got to make the content. I was like, okay, every 10 days you get new modules. And I freaking made it as I went along. And now it's done, but I didn't know. And so I, I'm really one to say, like, if you're creating courses or content, sell it first and then release it because then you don't waste your time. And like you said, then you're not the victim of like, nobody wants my thing. Like if you sell it, nobody bought it, then shoot, you don't waste your time making the whole thing. Right. <laughs> And I've run into the same stuff in the in the mindset work with my business coaching. And it's that thing where people are like, oh, well, I need help with my bookkeeping or I need to figure out how to do this. And I don't have enough time and I don't have enough money and all those things. And it's the exact same thing. It's like, well, here's how I mean, here are some things that can help with that. But really, it's all that mindset. And somebody told me that I'm a business therapist. <laughs> and I was like, that actually makes a lot of sense because it is it's not just about the details of managing a business. It's how are you thinking about things? And are you keeping that positive attitude? And I know some people get all weird about having a positive mindset, but I'm the annoying optimist. And I know just from my own experience, things work out, but you have to believe that they will. And it's the same thing when you're, you're creating a course and you're selling it before you've even made it, there, there's some faith right there that's this is going to work or it's not. Yeah. But if it does work, I know that I can deliver that one module a week as I have to at that point. Yeah. There's nothing like putting yourself on the hook and then and then also using that money to make it good. So, you know, I'm always thinking that, you know, perfectionism is like the worst enemy of, of anything because you want to make it perfect first. You want to make it look right, but then you don't have the money to do it. So then you don't start. People get in that loop too. Like, I want to create this course, but I need a videographer and I need this. And it's like, make a rough draft and then you upgrade. So my first course, I mean, all of it was done on my iPhone and then I updated it and I upgraded and then I still use my iPhone to be honest. No, we used a GoPro on the last one, but it was still like we, you know, we had lights the second time, but honestly it was now that I had the money from the course, I could use that money to make it a little better. And then the next time I could use the money to hire someone to do more graphic design. And the next time I sold it, I could upgrade it every time. So it was a little better every time, but you got to start somewhere. And if you're if you're in this spiral of like, I don't have the money to make it. I can't make it unless I have the money. It's like you, you go nowhere. So you have to go, how about I just try to sell it first and see what happens. All you need to create now is like a landing page and a way to collect payment. And I'll tell you, even this back in the day, this was when I was on Sweaty Betty's. I just threw PayPal links up on my stupid blog. I mean, there was no sales page. There was no sales copy. It was just like, hey, if you want this, go to my blog, click the PayPal button, and then I'll email it to you. I mean, this there's ways to make it happen and it's okay. Everybody starts somewhere. You don't have to be professional. You don't have to be like Marie Forleo or T Tony Robbins or whoever you're looking at and comparing yourself to. They have a team. They have the resources. If you don't, you don't, but you just have to start somewhere. They didn't have all that stuff when they started either. No, and no. it's, I think, comes down to being honest with yourself. How badly do you actually want it? Do you want it enough that you're willing to do what it takes to get there or do you just say you want it, but you like having the excuses because then you have a reason for why it's not happening. And that's a lot of things people don't want to hear. It's really tough sometimes. And that's why I tell people I can be a little bit tough love because I will say that. And I know you from listening, from just knowing you and then from your podcast, you're very blunt with people. You're very direct in, in a kind way, but it's helping people realize like, no, stop Stop making the excuses. Let's work on the solutions instead of the problems. Yeah. You know, I was called out on my bullshit when I was 15, 16. So, you know, you mentioned that I had a daughter when I was 15 and I knew you back then, which was so crazy. But I remember like at that time, I felt like 
everything was happening to me. My mom and I did not get along. Um, we had a family member in my house that I didn't want there. I mean, there was so much and just so much turmoil. And I had a social worker who was helping me through the adoption. And I would constantly be complaining to my mom. And she's like, okay, well, you know, she bring up some things like, what, what about me? And I was like, this isn't about me. This is her fault. You know, like pointing the fingers and never looking in the mirror. And she's like, you have a, and she's, she did agree. She's like, okay, your mom does have these issues and like, she's not the best, but you're at home. So what are we going to do about it? You know, until you're 18, this is what you're stuck with. And she made me read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And Man's Search for Meaning is a book. This man was a psychiatrist and he was in the Holocaust in a concentration camp. And he was like, just an observer while he was there and seeing like who would survive and who would die. And he said the people who were surviving, they'd find a, they'd find some kind of meaning. They'd find some reason to be alive. And not only that, he said that the guards or the, I don't know, officers, whatever, could take away everything, take away their clothes, shave their hair, take away their food, but they couldn't control their thoughts. They couldn't control what they thought about and how they perceived things. And so that was like this, you know, I'm 16 years old reading this and I was like, oh, you know, the way I'm looking at this, like my mom can't control my thoughts. I, I thought she was, I was like, she's making me mad. She's like, well, no one can make me you mad unless you choose to be mad. And that is a tough pill to swallow when you want to be justified. You, you know, your anger feels justified. You want to be angry. Like my ex-husband, when he had the affair, I was like, it's his fault for the divorce. I, you know, I didn't do this. I didn't choose this, but I'm stuck with the consequences anyway. So I have to go, do I want to be bitter, pissed off single woman? Or do I want to be someone who's open to a new relationship, who can let this go, who can be forgiving? And you have to decide who you want to be. And it's, it is a tough pill to swallow when we're, when we admit or realize that we are in control of our own perception, but it is also so powerful. And a lot of times people don't want to hear that or reconcile it. And I always say that even through the worst situations, as long as you take some kind of lesson out of it, as long as you learn and you're using it in some kind of positive way, and in that particular situation, tell us about your relationship with your daughter now. I know. So it's been so cool. She, so I, I placed her for adoption. We had her for about seven days. So I was in the hospital, like three or four of those. And then she'd stay with a foster family for two nights and then we'd spend time with her at the agency, but we picked a family for her. And I had, in my mind, I was, I always wanted to meet her, but it was not an open adoption. So I had to wait till she was 18. And then when she turned 18, I was kind of like, okay. I remember the day before her birthday, like I didn't, I knew nothing would really change, but I was just like thinking maybe something would. And of course the day passed and, but there was that, okay, now, now it's possible to meet. And I actually had through a mistake of the agency had been connected to her adoptive father and we had stayed in contact throughout the years and he'd tell me what she was up to. And so I reached out to him and I, I asked where she was and I wanted to get her address to send her a birthday present for her 18th birthday. And I waited until she moved to college because her birthday was in June waited so she was out of the house sent some gifts to the dorm and then I got no response I was like well <laughs> um and it was really hard I was just you know I didn't know what to expect I also realized that she's young and I've known her her whole life she has not known me and I finally got a response from her and she just said she was really overwhelmed and she wasn't sure what to do and she said she was asking her friends like should she meet me should she not 
And she said, they all just told her, do what you want. And she goes, I just wish somebody would tell me what to do. And so I kind of took that as a sign. I was like, well, maybe I should tell her what to do. (laughs) (laughs) So in a gentle way, I happened to, I found out she was back in California. I happened to be going to California for a speaking event. And I sent her an email and I said, hey, I'm going to be in town. We should meet up on Thursday or Friday. And she just responded back, sure. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't think she would answer. (laughs) So we ended up meeting, which was amazing, Um, like just one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. But we were wearing literally like both wearing chocks, both wearing overalls. I was like, we're freaking twins right now. And it was so cool. Like we're we talked for two hours and she just kept smiling and nodding. And I was like, why are you smiling? She goes, she's like, that's just me. That's exactly me. And it was just really cool to see like the nature nurture and the biological connection. And after that, we kind of didn't talk for almost a year. And then her biological dad came back to the States and I took her to meet him. And then just we, like we slowly built a relationship. I'll tell you, it was weird at first because it's like if you're, you have a crush on somebody and you want to text them every day, but you don't want to be weird. So you're like trying not to. That's how, that's exactly how I felt with her. I'm like, I want to say hi. I'm like, how are you doing? And I'm like, nope, stay back. Be cool. Be cool. But that was... 2016 in May. And so it's been four years. And now she's actually the editor of my podcast. She she gets to listen to me every freaking week in her ears, whether she wants to or not. But it's been really, really amazing because we've slowly, we've been able to develop um, more of a friendship over time. And because of the podcast, she's been able to get to know me through, you know, editing and listening to the stories. And so it's really, really cool. She's actually in LA now. And, um, and I'm, in LA a lot of the time. So I'm able to see her off and on. And um, what's what's been really special is I finally got to meet her mom last Mother's Day. And the last couple of months, her mom started a business and I've been getting on Zoom and kind of doing some like helping coach her mom in her business, which has been really fun to just kind of, it's really come full circle. And it's been really, really special. So many parts of your story are, are incredible, but it's it's that idea that's what seems tragic at the time. Yeah. If you do things kind of the right way and you keep open to possibilities, some really great things could happen. Sometimes it takes 18 years. Yeah. I, you know, that's just it is like you can't necessarily always judge a circumstance on what it looks like right now. And that's, you know, even to this, like what's happening in the world right now with, uh, with coronavirus, with the George Floyd case. I mean, what if this George Floyd case and all the rioting and all this finally gets things done that needed to be done for equality? Like what if this tragedy turns into something that finally fixes what's broken, you know? And so we just don't know and we don't know the domino effect that it has. And honestly, at that time, that was the worst thing that ever happened in my life. It was the hardest thing I ever been through. It was something that I never forgot and thought about every single day, every single month on the 25th, I thought of her every single year on June 25th, I'd think of where she at. And I never knew if I did the right thing. And now it's turned into the greatest blessing. And yeah, sometimes it takes 18 years. Sometimes we never know. And it's someone else's lesson. But I think there are always things that we can't know. And for me, it's been a lesson in trust, trusting that the things that happen, even though they may seem terrible, like the the bankruptcy. Next thing. I was like, this is the worst thing ever could happen in my life. If I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have probably taken so strong of notes on what I needed to do different with my money. And now I won't go down that path again. Like sometimes we have to go through the hardship to learn the hard lessons. You can rewrite your story if you don't like the one that you're telling yourself right now. 100%. 
I could talk to you for hours. Uh, I, I, I started this podcast. I'm like, I'm going to do short episodes, but I wanted to thank you for your time. And I'm sure we'll have to do this again because there's, there's so many things. Yeah. Where can everybody find you? Go push all your stuff on everybody now. Yeah. I, you know, I, sp- I spend the most time on Instagram. It's dannyj.com, D-A-N-N-Y, like a boy, and then spell dot com d-o-t-c-o-m because my last name is johnson and there's already a danny johnson as we know and that's not me so dannyj.com and then you can email me danny at dannyj.com i mean i'm dannyj.com everywhere twitter facebook but instagram is probably where i'm at the most i'm in the dms i'm in the stories a lot are any of your programs available right now are you in between you know i'm in between launches however findthemoneyproject.com is always up and open and there's emails that you'll still get to help you out there and then i also have a 21 day money mindset journal it's seven bucks and it's at 21dayjournal.com and that really helps with a lot of the mindset stuff i felt like this seven day challenge got a lot of like the practical stuff but the journal really helps you get through some of the deeper mindset stuff and things that maybe are holding you back that you don't really realize so I have those available and you could always email me if you're curious because I'll let people in at different times. I just tend to do it like all at once a couple times a year. Well, Danny J, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.